The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to The Legendarium. The idea that you could uh, talk to people um, intelligently on the internet and actually change the world, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it just seems so, you know, pre-2016 uh, pre, uh, or something. Pre-Twitter, yeah. Pre-Twitter, yeah. Pre, Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast, the podcast where, you know, we like to keep things, we like to keep people on their toes. You know, we, we don't want to just, uh, it's about getting off the beaten path, right? Finding those things that very few people have read. And so today we're doing Ender's Game, uh, this very niche, little known novel uh, from, you know, what was the 1980s. Uh, very much looking forward to this one. I, I, if you haven't read it, I understand. I'm kidding. As like, if anyone who's not familiar with Craig doesn't know sarcasm, that, that's Craig's sarcasm. <laughs> now, I am Craig Hanks, your host, and uh, over there, he's Ken Johnson, the hey. uh, battle school equivalent of a fart in the ventilation system. I am always there. Now with 40% less bug. <laughs> and the moment when I truly understand my enemy, in that moment, I realize that my enemy is, in fact, Ryan Bruckman. Yep, and you play video games trying to figure out how to get into my head. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Literally and, into his head. And he's only getting out of this podcast one way, on ice. It's Dave Farland. <laughs> Hello, Dave. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> good to hear from you. So, Dave, uh, Dave Farland, you may know as the uh, as the creator of the Rune Lords series. Uh, so there's a name you may recognize there. You, you've got a lot of other things, a lot, a lot of other credits to your name. You've taught a lot of other writers, uh, for instance. Uh, but the thing that that I am most excited about, Dave, um, and I learned this from the, uh, you know, the god of knowledge, uh, also known as Wikipedia, um, mm-hmm. that you are responsible for the character, the Lurker on StarCraft. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I really feel like this is your claim to fame, and I'm going to play this up as much as I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, in seriousness, before we start, uh, before we start the uh, discussion on the book, can I ask you about that? How that came to be? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, I was invited uh, by a small company in Provo, Utah, or actually I think they were in Orem at the time, uh, to uh, to help them send out a proposal for uh, for StarCraft Brood Wars. And uh, so I helped write up the proposal. And uh, when we got the job, um, I was asked if I would be a co-leader on the design team. And so my basic job was to come up with ideas for the game. And I was working actually at the time on my first Rune Lords book, and I had the Reavers in it. And I had been thinking about creating these creatures that were something sort of like giant ant lions that, you know, dug holes in the ground and and uh, hid within them and then would spring up and get anything that got too near. And uh, anyway, that became the seed for the lurkers. I, I went ahead and just put them in the game out of, for, the, for the fun of it. Um, and uh, they they turned out to be quite popular. <laughs> that, <laughs> that might be an understatement. This, uh, yeah, that's, that is fantastic. And so, you know, I, I just... I, I had to call that out. I, I hope that our listeners who are excited to get to Ender's Game will forgive me. I couldn't let that one go by uh, without asking you about that. So thanks, Dave. 
Um, So before we get to the story, again, just a a reminder, like we do every episode, visit us at thelegendarium.reddit.com where you can join in the conversation and support the show at patreon.com slash legendarium. Uh, We thank our patrons. Uh, Cannot possibly thank you enough, but, but, well, there's one. Thank you very much. So uh, now let's get on to Ender's Game. Now, if you... If you haven't read, if you haven't read Ender's Game, seriously, what's wrong with you? Uh, go read yeah. Ender's Game. That <laughs> I know not everybody loves it, but uh, uh, but everybody should have read it by now. If you haven't read it for some reason, uh, this will be a spoiler-heavy podcast, and so heads up, I'm gonna do a little synopsis now, and I'll just tell you I'm gonna spoil everything. So there's a nice twist in this book, and so if you haven't experienced it for yourself, uh, if you somehow avoided the book and the movie a few years ago, then Go, go read it, and then come back and listen to this. Now, Ender's Game is the by-now classic story of Ender Wigan, the child genius who is semi-conscripted by the military to go to the space-based battle school in the hopes that he can be shaped by a simple game into the finest military mind the world has ever seen. And the clock is ticking, because humanity has twice narrowly escaped annihilation at the hands of the Buggers, an alien race with superior technology that seems bent on wiping out mankind. Though his journey is not without incredible drama and stress, Ender proves equal to the task, and in the end, he learns that what he thought was a game was real all along, and his tactics, his commands, have been used to destroy the enemy homeworld. So humanity lives on, but Ender is left to pick up the pieces of his broken mind and broken heart. Couldn't have done it better myself. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> That's good. So so, so you're saying that... that- the buggers were real and, and and this was a real battle oh man <laughs> it's okay. uh, like i said there's quite a twist in this book there's and a, there's a, so there that is a spoiler yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so uh dave what we do here on this author's shelf series just in case people aren't familiar with it by now is we invite on an author and ask them to pull a book from their shelves not necessarily something they wrote in fact we ask that it not be something that they wrote but rather something that has been inspirational or in some way uh, influential in their lives at some point, and you chose Ender's Game. Yeah. I'd like to ask you why. Just a simple question right up front. Why did you choose this book? Well, I first read Ender's Game when I read the uh, the novella version uh, back in 1979. It came out from Analog. A friend gave it to me and forced it upon me and said, you have to read this story. And so um, so I read it and uh, soon found myself, uh, gosh, by about 1980, 81, uh, we had the first um, copies of... of uh, Oh, what was the name of that? There's a big magazine that was coming out that uh, had a lot of Orson Scott Card short stories in it, uh, Omni Magazine. And uh, and so I found myself uh, kind of gravitating toward them over the next two to three years. It seemed like every time that I'd see a new story come out by him, I would go grab the copy right away, uh, buy it off the shelves. And, uh, and so I, I think it kind of led me to become a fan of his work early on as a, certainly it was a powerful novella and then of course when the novel came out i was rooting for it too uh by then i i'd become a pretty firm fan so it wasn't just um just this book it was an introduction to the author as a whole and i think that if i look at short story writers of the 20th century in science fiction i I really don't see any better um, out there. Yeah. Hang on one second. 
you know, it became an introduction to his work, and I found it really exciting. Um, Scott Card has uh, a, a long interest in um, in basically when he was young, he was interested in drama, and so he's very strong as a dramatic writer. Okay, but he was also uh, really interested in logic and argumentation and that type of thing. And so he just has this gift of dialogue that I always just found fascinating. Um, I was never the confrontational kind of person, especially I didn't like to get into arguments. Uh, so so it was sort of like the antithesis of me. Um, and, and I think that was a lot of what drew me to Scott's work. And then of course, he really does love to play with ideas and uh, and have surprising twists in them and, and that type of thing. So um, I just really felt like, oh, when we start talking about deserving authors, you know, I think about people like Tolkien and Herbert and everybody talks about them. But Orson Scott Card uh, isn't uh, uh, doesn't get a lot of as much credit maybe as he deserves. You know, of course, he has won a Hugo and a Nebula and the World Fantasy Award and all these other awards. But um, but we don't I don't hear a lot of people talking about him. That's interesting. Well, and I wonder if there's a difference between now and then. Uh, and and I wonder if you might be able to speak to this, Dave, because you uh, you were around at that point and you were kind of uh, uh, at the at the forefront, or you got to see the you know the arrival of Orson Scott Card on the scene. Um, can you speak at all to uh, what you feel like is the influence that he had at the time uh, or since uh, on oh, the yeah. on the science fiction and fantasy community? Well, he had a huge influence. For one thing, he uh, he had a column in the magazine of fantasy and of fantasy and science fiction, where he would do a review column called "Books to Look For," and that was a really popular column because he wasn't taking cheap shots at other authors. He was praising them, always uh, always talking up their work and and that kind of thing. And so, I think everybody in the field knew him. Everybody was reading that column. Um, interested in currying his favor and and looking at his views and and uh and that gave him a lot of visibility and when you've got a critic with a lot of visibility who's also an excellent writer uh it just seemed to me that he would turn out one powerful work after another in his short fiction in particular and uh and then uh, you know uh there was there was just a lot of people who were interested in him and he was he was being talked about he was in the magazines all the time you know uh giving appearances at major conventions and stuff like that and uh uh you know and then a few years ago he sort of kind of went into a semi-retirement and, and quit making those appearances and things and so he's kind of fallen out of the public eye a bit um and i think that was done intentionally well i suppose that's maybe part of the reason why people don't talk about him as much you know you look at other authors um who do get out there uh you know we're talking about the uh, patrick rothfuss or scott lynch or brandon sanderson or, you know people who are constantly out there I, yeah. I suppose maybe that has something to do with it if he's kind of uh in retreat a little bit mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i think so yeah so let's get on to the story itself um Ryan, let me kick it to you first and just give me your overall impressions of what this book has meant to you when you first read it um, and whether your views on it have changed over the years. Oh, yeah. I I honestly don't remember the first time I've read this, probably a half dozen or more times. 
Um, <clears throat> but I remember the first time reading Ender's Game was probably around the high school, junior high age, something like that. And one of the reasons why this caught up with me so much was um, my the, the hero in this, Ender, in a lot of science fiction fantasy, you have a young boy hero, the sure. farm boy type, whatever. But this was slightly different in that this boy was a genius. This boy was incredibly, uh, you know, savant. He's an intelligent person, and he's being taken, you know, into space, where usually it's I'm the little boy who doesn't know what's going on until Gandalf teaches me what I need to know, and <laughs> sure. that sort of thing. And so this it stood out to me as different. And you know, at the time, I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, and that was a big part of my growing up and everything. And so this was in the stars and kind of felt in that similar vein Battles for me. in space. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so this, I think, a chance for a highly intelligent young uh, young character that I could I could relate to and, and kind of uh, connect with a little bit, uh, being in space and doing things just that were, that sounded fun while still having an air of uh, Some weight, to, weight to what they're doing. Yeah. 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 It's it's a little different, even in that uh, a lot of these um, kind of traditional coming of age farm boy stories that you're talking about. You know, you think of Luke Skywalker as the 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 er uh, farm boy coming of age, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're often set where the protagonist is uh, kind of a teenager or a young adult. They're on the cusp of adulthood, right. and this adventure is going to bring them into that. And Ender is a little different in that when he finishes the story, he you know it kind of like lets out this great sigh and says, "Okay, now I can have a childhood." Yeah, you know? right. So yeah. it's a little bit different that way. Uh, what about you, Ken? Uh, it might not come as much of a surprise, but my first time reading this was like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Wait, really? Re- relatively. No, no. I, I, I actually I started reading it a few weeks ago when Dave suggested it. And this, no, I, I want to back up but and clarify. No, this was the first time. This you've was the read first the time book? I've read the book. Wow. But I, I've known about it for years. Orson Scott Card is a, is a legend. Sure. I mean, especially you know where we are because he's he's from here as well and. Uh, so everybody, all of my friends who have been into science fiction and fantasy, they've always talked up Ender's Game and and the the, I think there's five right in the there's four in the first four cycle. in the series. Okay, or, in the I guess cycle. five now, yeah. But so I, I've known it's always been out there, and I've just never really given it the time to go do it. And this was the convenient excuse to finally get off the fence and do it. And honestly, this is the first book that we have read, you know, for the podcast that I finished and immediately went back and started again. Really? Yeah, I I read cool. through this one twice. It was so good, and uh, yeah. which is part of, part of the reason why I I never I resisted reading it in the first place is because everybody oh, says something is good, and I'm just like oh, okay, that's fine. I'll get to it eventually. But but this was really yeah. I mean this was this stands on every praise that it gets. Yeah, go ahead. One, Dave. Of, the, one of the things that uh, that intrigued me was the protagonist as a genius. You know, when I was a kid, um, I was 15. I was uh, I, I was, um, you can say it, Dave. I, I was a okay. genius. Well, I, I, I had a, I had a slightly higher than average IQ and I was recruited by the CIA and, uh, and, you know, I remember talking to them saying, why do you want to talk to me? And they were like, well, we've seen your IQ scores, you know, and, and, uh, anyway, and, and I, I really felt like, oh, you got the wrong guy. You know, um, I'm just not that smart. Um, but, 
I think that, you know, science fiction fans as a whole typically are interested in technology. They're up to date. Uh, they tend to have higher IQs if they're avid readers. Anybody who's an avid reader in any genre tends to have a higher IQ than people who don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but but I, I think that that does pull in a lot of science fiction readers and people just love this, the character of Ender Wiggins, um, you know, uh, tremendously. Yeah, yeah. Now, I read a lot as a kid. I never got contacted by the CIA. Is that a true story? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was contacted by uh, representatives of the CIA, the uh, Secret Service, and uh, the NSA, uh, and they basically wanted to hire me to go work in a think tank. So, right. um, so yeah. I want to drop that into conversation sometime. When I was recruited by the CIA. I know. That's, uh, yeah. that, that's the best, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I don't know if you're a cocktail party person, but if you were, that's the best cocktail party right. story ever. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't do it, so it sort of ended there. Well, <laughs> still, no, but, you know, this is like, uh, this is like uh, well, you know, she didn't break up with me. I broke up with her. You know, it's you actually <laughs> you get, go. you yeah. gain credibility by being able to say, I said no to the CIA. I turned down the CIA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that's cool. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Ender as a protagonist. Let's well, I, sh I should say let's keep talking about Ender as a protagonist. Uh, Ryan, you mentioned you know he is uh, kind of similar yet different from a lot of protagonists that we see. Uh, I really like him a lot as a protagonist because uh, he is. I mean, we're talking about the fact that he's a genius, right? He has this one character trait, and he has a few other things that his empathy and whatnot, uh, and his, his, I, it's not the bloodthirstiness of Peter, but, you know, it's uh, kind of drifting along those lines. He has all these very well-drawn characteristics, and so he is an individual. Uh, he's, he's a character. He's not a vessel, but somehow... There's a, a fine line being walked here where Ender is this kind of individual character on his own, and yet it's easy for uh, people to see themselves in him. And the book yeah. wouldn't succeed unless they were able to do that, right? Uh, yeah. I think, I think that his compassion has a lot to do with it. Uh, when we see a person who cares about others, who's struggling to help others, uh, it releases oxytocin into our bloodstream, a hormone that basically makes us feel more compassionate for them. So their compassion unlocks our compassion. And I think that's a tremendously powerful character trait. And not only does Ender feel compassion for the other kids in his group, but he also feels it for his enemies and even for uh, even for the aliens that he ends up fighting later on. It, it ends up, you know, eating him alive inside uh, what he's forced to do. And I think that that's, that's part of the power because any time that you're a, a a young person who's going through military training or something like that. Uh, that's what happens. You know, it, it destroys your humanity. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is uh, one of the nice things about literature like this is that it puts things in very kind of loud, stark terms. And then you get to take lessons from that and, and see it in your own life. But it's usually a lot more, you know, muted uh, in our own <laughs> lives. Right. Uh, but I used to work in a bank. I, I worked in retail banking. And so I sat at a desk and people would come to me with their, uh, you know, financial questions and problems and needs and concerns and all this stuff. And uh, and I burned out in banking way faster than my colleagues. 
because <laughs> I couldn't let go of the personal stories that people were telling me. Or, you know, they, they say like, oh, it's you can't think of it in personal terms or else you get too invested and it's too difficult to be a good you know customer service representative or whatever i couldn't do it and so i was always <laughs> concerned with them and and uh you know doing what's right for them and all that and stuff and and so i would come home at the end of every day absolutely exhausted the irony of customer <laughs> service yeah something like that <laughs> so I so i mean it's but it's little things like that like is that stupid compared to you know becoming the admiral of the entire human fleet that's off to destroy the alien world like yeah that's stupid but it's those little examples like that that we can see in our own lives if we're looking for them. I think I think good literature does that. It resonates with you, and and you find yourself being altered by it. You know, um, not only uh, does it make you aware of your own personal conflicts, but I think it helps deepen them. And and you know, the story starts out being about Ender Wiggins, but eventually, as you're reading through it, the story becomes about you. And that's what a great author does, is they recognize that this story has to take us beyond the realm of story and into the personal life of the reader. Yeah. Ryan, were you going to say something? Uh, probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, Sorry about that. No, you're fine. It's There's something that this whole conversation has kind of stirred in my mind, and the problem is that I haven't been able to make it a cohesive thought yet. Oh, no, we specialize in uh, non, lack of cohesion on this podcast. Thoughts. But I, I'm looking at a character like Ender and the connection we're able to make and why we like him. Um, being that he is a genius, he is a character who can who stands out uh, different because of those reasons versus uh, some other characters who are similar in nature. For I, I wouldn't say they're the exact same, but something like, for example, Kvothe in uh, Name, of the Wind. Name of the Wind, who is also an incredibly intelligent, gifted, right. everything seems to yeah. work for them type mm-hmm. character. But I have less of a an emotional connection, less of a draw to a quoth than I do to Ender. And I don't know if it's simply a matter of the... It's not humility, because Ender knows he's intelligent and he owns it, but he doesn't have the braggadocio that quoth has That's, either. No, but I, I, I think this is an important distinction to make, because uh, it, it is humility. You, recognizing your own strengths uh, isn't a lack of humility, right? Uh, but... You, when you look at a character like both, like you said, braggadocio, that's a great word for it. Um, if we're less Italian, I would say he's a cocky jerk, right? Uh, and Ender is not. And this is, you know, this is why I, I'm sure a lot of people do love both. And, and I wonder if for many of them it's because of the fact that he's a cocky jerk or if it's in spite of that. Uh, and they love the story that he's going through. Uh, but with Ender, he's a lot more uh, lovable. Yeah, one one thing about Ender is that uh, Orson Scott Card used some techniques that were, uh, you know, rather subtle. Uh, for one thing, he never describes Ender. He doesn't tell you what color Ender's hair color is or his eye color. And so when you read the book, you are invited to think that Ender is like you. And and you don't even have to worry about skin color, you know. Um, you can be uh, you can be Chinese or black and still see yourself as Ender Wiggins uh, because we're never told what color hair they have. Or as many a lesser writer would say, oh, he had fiery red hair and you know Irish ancestry or something like that. Uh, instead, instead, Scott was trying to invite you. Orson Scott Card was trying to invite you into the character right from the very beginning. Makes sense to me, uh, and I, I hadn't actually realized that 
I guess that's the power of a good storyteller where I made it through the entire story, uh, what, 10 times now? I don't know how many times I've read this book uh, and never realized that I don't get a description of Ender. Because I guess in a way, I don't care. Uh, but it's uh, but I, I like this point that you're making. I, I hadn't thought of that before. And, uh, and and I wonder why that's not more common. I'm, I'm not sure. I would say some of that might be in a more modern term, some of it could be a, uh, the effect of a more cinematic writing style where people want to be able to have a visual, a visualized characters. Right. Um, movie, a movie coming yeah. off the page. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, I think that so many writers make the mistake of writing cinematically, you know, which is, you know, I'm the director and the camera is pointing towards this character and now they're pointing towards that character and we don't get into the internal character. We stay on the surfaces on, on we see what they look like and we hear their voices and that's it. Um, and that really leads to re to, to weak writing. You know, one of the great things about, a character like Ender Wiggins is he's so immersive that um, that you are living through the story rather than experiencing it from the outside. And so you've always heard that the, the book is better than the movie. Well, the book is better than the movie, and there's a reason why. Uh, and that's because we get so deep into the point of view of the character that um, uh, we really we really penetrate into that character. Yeah. You know, I I, uh, I I don't want to spend much time on the Ender's Game movie that came out a few years ago, but I, I will say mm -hmm. this. Um, it's remarkable when I compare it to other books of a similar length that have had adaptations. Um, mm -hmm. And it's remarkable to me how little it seems like they were able to fit in that movie. It's mm -hmm. This is such a dense book. And when you break it down, like if you were to bullet point out the the uh, framing of this story, or not the framing, I, I should say the uh, outlining of this story, if you were to bullet point it out, not that complex, right? It, we're going no. from we're going from scene to scene to scene, and they're all very distinct, and it's very clear. It has this really clear progression, but something about uh, you know the the personalities and the philosophy that he's able to pack into the book make it incredibly dense and apparently very difficult to adapt yeah you know a few weeks after the movie came out and and i thought that it was a pretty good movie myself but i i was traveling across the desert in nevada and uh stopped at a a little gas station um i was on a reservation and it was three in the morning and and there were a number of people sitting there talking about their favorite movies of all time and so as i shopped i was listening to them and they were naming off different science fiction movies and then all of a sudden one of them said ah and ender's game and all of the indians in the group there were probably 15 of them uh nodded sagely and that ended the conversation and i thought okay there's something about that movie that really resonates <laughs> with native american indians you know <laughs> or at least um, that group of them or at least with that group of them. Yeah. So um, you know, sometimes when we look at a movie, um, it, it may not seem as powerful to us. And I think maybe that's because we lived through the book, you know, um, but, uh, but other people can receive it just fine. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of Avatar here. Uh, when Avatar came out, you know, it wasn't considered a powerful movie. But when I was in China, uh, I was doing some screenwriting there, and um, uh, they banned Avatar because it was getting too much 
too many views that had gone over $100 million in grossing $100 million in, in the first four weeks. And the biggest Chinese movie of all time had taken about three and a half years to get to $105 million. And so they called it that greedy movie Avatar, and they banned it. And then in response, the next day, a couple of people went and immolated themselves in Tiananmen Square um, because they felt wow. that this was a movie that was about them and about the the government reality and what they were doing to uh, to some of their citizens that were um, you know a little bit more uneducated and backward. That took a turn. Behold <laughs> the power of stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I kind of feel like I just want to stop talking and say, uh, excuse me, Dave Farland, do you have any other amazing stories to tell? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's uh, I, I hadn't actually heard about that. That's um, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it never made it. It never made it into the Western press. You don't say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's very interesting. So, gosh, now I'm I I don't particularly want to, but I feel like we should maybe move on and talk about some other aspects of the story. Uh, and one thing that I want to make sure that we get to is uh, we've talked about Ender as our main protagonist, but we need to talk about the siblings, uh, Valentine and Peter. Mm-hmm. And now I am not as familiar with the short story, the original short story that came out, uh, but I assume that this was an add-on for the full uh, novel version. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, as I recall, now you're asking me to remember something that I read <laughs> 30 years ago. Um, you know, Valentine and Peter uh, were there, but they in, in the novella version, they didn't spend as much time. It was just he had the brothers and sisters. Uh, Ender was a third born in the family, which was only allowed if you had a genius child who had some sort of gift that they hoped that, you know, might be stowed, be bestowed upon humanity through them, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and that was an important point was that he was a third. But beyond that, we didn't get into his brother and sister very much. Right. Uh, but in this case, we do. And it's it was, so we're given at least one really fleshed out uh, chapter involving the two of them working together to influence, uh, you know, international politics. Uh, mm-hmm. But then they also show up, you know, throughout the story. They're peppered throughout the story. Um, but I, I do find their characters uh fascinating if only because i wonder what sort of peak if any at all it's giving us into orson scott card and and what he thinks of the the international order and all that and uh kind of the way that the press and the way that the politicians and demagogues uh, play or yeah pray i guess is maybe a good word for it upon uh the common people and all this stuff. And it's, it's all very, again, densely packed into a pretty short amount of time. Uh, but you have them right in case you've forgotten, in case anybody's forgotten, you have Valentine and Peter, uh, getting on the internet, going on forums and, uh, and writing under the pseudonyms Demosthenes and Locke. And we can talk about who those historical figures are if we want to, but, uh, they end up, gaining all of this power or at least peter does he uses valentine to gain all this power and become the hegemon of you know the entire earth and all this stuff and uh is there anything that you guys want to talk about with these characters or the journey that they go through ryan you you leaned right into the mic it looks like did you have something you wanted to talk about well the i love this portion of the book i love the the depth that it goes into and everything uh 
I'm curious and I would love to know the mentality of why Scott Orson Scott Card felt that this part of the story, this subplot needed to be told at the same time with Ender's story because you could, you could just do a different theoretically book. just yeah, let it cut it apart, put it as its own piece in this Ender's series and just have Ender's game be just Ender's story with a few moments where he reaches out to people back home because the only real interaction like major interaction Ender has with them um, is later on um, towards the end of the story when well, he comes, right. when he comes back home for a little bit. Well, it feels like as a first time reader that that Peter and Valentine are are basically set up specifically to be the extreme in both directions for what Ender ends up being. Right. He's he's the the perfect blending of the two of them and and their paths during the story kind of show you basically the potential extremes that that could uh that what could have could been fall to be. yeah that could have been ender basically and he's he's the nice blending of the two and and I, later it resolves to something for future books that shows how peter and valentine become very important in you know the the new world order and all of that and yeah no i think but, you're I, you're on an interesting track where you know if he went the peter route he could conquer the world right well and he's very and concerned he, about it the whole time and right? if he went the valentine route he would Valentine, for all of her big talk, you know, even in her internal monologues, uh, she's quite manipulable uh, yeah. by Peter, and and he, she kind of sees what he's doing, but maybe doesn't quite care. But still you know, goes along. Doesn't with it care and, enough. And yeah, yeah, it goes along, uh, and so maybe that's. So we're getting shades of what Ender could, what could happen to Ender if he just gave in to the system, you right. know, in the battle school or command school or whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, I like where you're going with that, Ken. Any thoughts on this, Dave? Yeah, I think I think that it's a really interesting section uh, to me. First of all, it's a very hopeful section. The idea that you could uh, talk to people um, intelligently on the internet and actually change the world—I uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't know—it just seems so, you know, pre uh, pre uh, 2016 pre, or something. Pre Twitter, yeah. Pre Twitter, yeah. Pre, yeah. It was uh, yeah. it was funny to me that 35 years before now he was seeing this the internet and the forums and the arguing and much uh, more civilly than it is get, yeah, much more like, civil than it actually is now but like Dave said this is pretty hopeful stuff compared yeah, to what pretty <laughs> utopian well but I but I also think you know when when Orson Scott Card was in call or was in high school I should say um, you know he he loved to go and. Uh, uh, he, he he loved logic. He loved he loved being able to argue points and to uh, you know to do public speaking and and you know this kind of goes back to the ancient Greeks you know in the forums who who would study poetics with the idea of becoming more persuasive and uh, and really making you know legitimate changes in the world and i think we all want to do that we all want to we all want a world where we can um manipulate it you know and and make it better uh simply by uh using wisdom and logic and compassion and you know uh, turning it into a better place so you know i think that's a really powerful thing and um i just uh, i just kind of throw myself throw my hands in the air and feel helpless when i look at some of the idiocy that i see on the internet nowadays <laughs> well you're not alone oh yeah <laughs> yeah no but i you know i would say if if anybody out there ha is unfamiliar with who demosthenes and Locke are uh and you're interested in this section of the story particularly 
Uh, go look him up. Demosthenes is an ancient Greek orator who is, uh, you know, if you study Demosthenes, you can really learn about the art of demagoguery. Uh, and, you know, like you're saying, Dave, the art of persuasion through, uh, you know, rhetorical means, right? Um, mm-hmm. Very, very effective at that. Uh, a little too effective, some would say, right? Uh, John Locke, who is uh, what Peter's character, he starts arguing as Locke. Uh, John Locke is considered by many, he's called the father of liberalism. And so, and I'm not talking about, you know, the cheap, version of it whatever we call liberalism not, now not i'm talking, talking about, about leftism like, but no yeah, yeah yeah i'm talking about actual uh enlightenment liberal liberalism and so very fascinating characters both of them and if you're interested in this stuff look them both up um all right so what else do we need to talk about should we well you know i i wanted to say too um, oh yeah i i was fascinated enough by them as characters i sort of suspected that orson scott card would do another book and that we would see one from the point of view of valentine for example um and uh you know we he has done uh of course sequels but we haven't seen those sequels in in your opinion would they be as compelling with valentine being kind of a more passive character than both ender and peter i think that uh i think that you could you know what makes a character compelling very often is the dimensions of their enemies um you know what their enemies are willing to resort to what they will do how they defend themselves all of those become interesting and if you look at ender's game you'll see ender no matter where he goes whether he's in battle school whether he's on earth he's got he's got troubles everywhere he looks even in his own little family um so uh orson scott card is very well aware of how to uh how how enemies seem to naturally arise uh in any situation and i think he would do a great job of of coming up with a story for those characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's something that I've said a few times where a lot of, a lot of times what's interesting, uh, you know, I'll relate it to a specific work, um, Elantris. Uh, a lot of complaints that I hear about Elantris is that uh, you take Rayodin, the main character in Elantris, or one of them, uh, and he's just perfect. He comes out perfect, and he goes through the story, and there's no character development. But part of what's interesting in that story is that, yeah, you have a character who is fully developed and who has a cohesive worldview and, a, and an attitude, and then he's thrust into situations where you get to see how that uh, how that attitude, how that worldview plays out in those situations. And so, yeah, maybe that could, uh, you know, it would yeah. play out yeah, as mean, something radio, similar to that. Radio, Rayadon is, is trying to create a new society, a new world. He's, uh, and, and that's a big enough problem right there. I don't know that we need a, anything beyond that as far as character development goes for him. Right, right. Well, and he's trying to install hope and dignity where there is none. Right, but that's a, yeah. another thing. That's that's kind of like us. Well, that's okay. Yeah. That, but that is that's that's building society, right? I mean, that's yes, uh, it is. It, when yeah. you're instilling hope, when you're instilling respect for yourself and others. I mean, that is the definition of society. It's pulling yourself out of uh, you know out of our kind of animalistic past and and creating uh, mm-hmm. society between all of us. Uh, which actually brings me to something else that I want to talk about with Ender's Game, which is. The con- Which is what he does too. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the concept of 
um, what, how do I want to put this? It's our accurately, (laughs) (laughs) eloquently, (laughs) eloquently. Oh yeah. Eloquently. That ship has sailed. Ken, that this is uh, this is episode two thirty six, and that sailed by three, I think. Uh, no, it's, it, it sets up this tribalistic past versus the kind of, uh, uh, enlightened society, present or that we strive for that we hope that we live in right uh mm-hmm. and so we're we have ender taken from his home and put in the battle school where it is it is deliberately set up as a uh, a kind of society of children who are organized into tribes and encouraged in their tribal instincts mm-hmm. uh, and ender is there to pull them out of that and to make something more out of them. And the way that he does that is by civilizing them. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and it's the battle school portion of the book is the part that for me uh, sticks out the most and, you know, kind of sticks Mm -hmm. in my memory the most. And would that be the same for you guys? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And I I think that Ender does try to civilize them, which is, of course, what his brother and sister are trying to do with the rest of the world. You know, Uh, I think that that's what adults end up trying to do uh, their whole lives is is trying to figure out how do I create a better society? There's a there's a great quote from Hannah Arendt. Uh, She says, um, every generation, Western civilization is invaded by barbarian hordes. We call them children. Yes, I, I love that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's the parents' duty to civilize them, right? Uh, anyway, it's a great quote, but it's you know maybe deeper than you might think uh, on first first glance. Anyway, it, it's funny. I, I caught a little bit of uh, parallel between this and and Frank Herbert's God Emperor of Dune, which you know Blue Team is doing, in, in the sense that we we uh, talked a lot about in God Emperor of Dune how Paul kind of punts his responsibility no down spoilers. to his kids. I'm no, not okay. He 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 punts his responsibilities <laughs> down to his kids and and that feels very similar to this in that the adults in order to beat the bugs they go out and they recruit a bunch of kids. Kids that should be far too young for what they are recruited for. I mean Ender is 6 years old and which is hard to really keep a grasp on as you read the story. He feels much older which he's supposed to, but but it's the same idea of of adults not being adults and saying kids you figure it out and uh, you know and they give them a little bit of direction and and prodding well, you know, here and there but it's really it, the kids who save us i don't know I, if I there's really anything to that but i i really can't help but think that you know when you start looking at something like the national debt aren't we doing the same aren't yeah. we saying to our children you figure it out um let me enrich myself and and live happily ever after and you go handle it i, I feel um, like these days it's more of a we don't care what happens to you this is what we're doing now yeah, than yeah, it, than I, it I was think about so. thinking of our kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, and, and it sure, certainly it is. There's an awful lot of people who are that way. Yeah, uh, I, I want to stick with battle school for just a moment uh, because, and stick with this idea of civilization uh, because of the the main threat in this story, which is annihilation. Right, the end of the world, the end of the human race as we know it, or not as we know it. It's the end of the human race. Uh, if the aliens come back and kill us all. Uh, and so in the face of this threat, civilization has taken these kids uh, and they've, they've created a system, like I said, the system where they de-civilize the kids and they re-barbarianize mm-hmm. them. 
and uh, and and there's a clue to this or a key to this later in the book, and I, I believe it's Graf talking with somebody, and and he says, uh, he says survival first, then happiness as we can manage it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and 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 I guess the question here is how would we react? in the face of an existential threat like that and is it uh is it of course it's natural but is it right and proper that in this story society has chosen to revert at least in some respects in this one small ecosystem to uh to bring out the barbarians in the smartest people in the entire world so that you know in the hopes that we can uh defeat our enemies crush our enemies and see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women and all that stuff, right? <laughs> we, we, want, we need those barbarians. Anyway. I, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. You know, we, we, have, we have wars. Uh, every, every society does this. You know, you look, in, you look at stories of, of uh, you know, um, Arab terrorists in, in Africa, you know, going in and capturing children when they're 10 and 12 years old and training them to battle and making them mercenaries and, you know, sending them out as armed thugs to, uh, to destroy neighboring tribes and stuff like that. You know, we've been doing that for, for thousands and thousands of years. You know, Roman soldiers were recruited at the age of 16, you know, and you went out and fought. And if you lived till you were, if you lived for 25 years, you retired with full military honors, you know? Um, so, so we see that this has been happening over and over again, that the natural, the natural, uh, way for people to combat a big existential threat like that is to uh, to become decivilized and the the uh, answer in Orson Scott Card's book is for Ender to not just civilize himself but to try to civilize the world it's uh, and you're talking about the very end of the book with the whole speaker for the dead kind of thing is that what you're thinking of yeah yeah i think absolutely uh, the fact that ender um that that he creates in the battle school he creates his he basically turns his enemies into friends and uses them to to help him uh beat the game when he discovers that the game wasn't a game that he just wiped out an entire intelligent species uh then he's uh, you know, he's just overwhelmed with guilt. You know, uh, he has become a civilized leader, and then of course that leads to Speaker for the Dead. Um, which I, you know, I'm debating whether we uh, <laughs> go on with. The, I, I'll be interested to hear what the listeners want us to do. I know that the uh, next three books in the series are divisive uh, among yeah. fans of Ender's Game, uh, including Todd, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, he, yeah. I I remember. I I don't remember much about them, but I remember at least liking the the first sequel. So. I loved I loved Speaker for the Dead. I remember when I got done with it, thinking that that was even better than Ender's Game for me at that time. So, I read Ender's Game when I was what twenty one, and Speaker for the Dead would have come, you know, a few years later. Uh, would have been in my mid twenties, something like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I just felt like, at least at that time, that was a very powerful book for me. And I, I loved a lot of his other books, too. Um, I, I, I have my personal favorites, you know. I mean, we always do. Yeah. Um, 
uh, he his book, uh, The Lost Boys. Um, that one really hit me because I read it when I was in my mid-30s. I was a game designer. It was about a game designer uh, slash novelist. And, you know, there's just a lot of things that, that hit me at that time, uh, being a young father and everything. That was a very powerful book for me. Well, let's move on then to final thoughts. I know that, uh, it, Dave, your time is precious. Don't worry, ours isn't. Um, but uh, <laughs> we want to start wrapping up the discussion. And so I'll just kick it uh, and we'll go around the horn uh, with final thoughts on Ender's Game uh, as far as what impact it, you feel like it'll have on you, uh, who you recommend it to, that sort of thing. Ken, you go first. Well, I, I appreciate uh, that the book is largely, I mean, even though the issues are heavy, this is largely a children's book. And it was written, if I'm not mistaken, it was written fairly deliberately as a children's story. I mean, he, he, he left a lot of the, the bad words out. And uh, I think he... It depends I even, on who you ask. Well, that's fart <laughs> eaters. But, but, but I, I really want my children to read it. It's one I kind of wish I had read as a kid, but I don't know that I would have appreciated some of the some of the lessons that i think are clearly lessons for kids like for example adults will never bail you out or people will never you know which is not always true you get a good tribe and you know tribe bails you out but things like uh, the game is is always real for example i mean that's really the takeaway here is the game is always real even if you are playing just a game how you react how you respond uh, those are things that you take away outside of the game, whether you wilt under pressure, whether you rise to the occasion, you know, whether you treat an enemy respectfully, that sort of, those are things that even though you're playing the game, those are things you take into real life. So the game is always real, basically. All right. Uh, Ryan, what about you? Uh, one of the things, uh, first off, obviously I recommend this book to anybody who wants to read a good story period. Anybody Absolutely. who can read. Yeah. This yeah. is, this isn't, there's no, you know, special grouping here that I think would not enjoy this book. Um, there's a portion of this book that uh, we didn't really talk about a whole lot, um, and it's Ender's um, army that he's given. Yeah, um, dragon the, army. They that's basically the dregs. It's the the castouts from everywhere else and castouts, outcasts. Yes, that thank was you. that was awesome. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the this this grouping here, and that's one of the things. And then he's given the impossible task of you may not lose. Like you cannot lose ever. What well, is he given that task? Or he gives that to himself, right? At a certain <sighs> point, he's in like he's literally given, basically told. It, I, I think he's told, yeah, you cannot lose. Yeah, this, I think Anderson is, yeah. basically gives it to him toward the end. There, it's like, yeah. And I remember just as a kid that the taking that thought, taking that realization, and going, okay, if the odds are stacked against me change the rules. The enemy's gate is down. Like, whatever you have to kind of grab from those, but don't give up just because of the odds of something and what you've been given don't seem to match the task ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Just figure out a way to change the rules. Yeah. Do what's not expected. You know, it's the one time he comes out in a formation and, you know, he kind of cheats the system. The one where he comes in and goes and just the four helmets hit the, the gate. And right, right, he, right. Like, so the only way to... It's not the only way to win is to not play. It's, it's the only way to win is to make the or to play the rules, or to it's, play the game based on your own rules. Oh, it's yeah. James Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru. That's, what <laughs> yeah, that's cheating. That's different. <laughs> eh, I don't know that it's different. Well, we are not Star Trekking on this episode. That is not happening. All right. I'm just um, saying, yeah. like, but so, yes, know, know the the place where you're playing and, and and 
know the rules and be able to uh, adapt yourself to those circumstances. Okay. I think, I think that uh, this book is wonderful in that it, um, it, it invites the reader to look at the world and take a bigger perspective to kind of step back and say, okay, look at the bigger picture. And this, everything that you do really is important. It's serious. And, you know, you're going to need to use all of your resources in order to understand this game and to see beyond it. And I think that, you know, right now, if you look at it in in New York, I was just doing a study of, of young adult books last year. There were 440 of them that were published by major publishers. Of those, only about 10% had a male protagonist. So there's not a lot of stories where young men are appearing as characters. So I think this is a book that would particularly be appealing for young men, uh, young readers. And then uh, I remember, gosh, when it came out, it was being sent to schools and being sold in schools for people that, uh, for English teachers who wanted to invite readers to uh, to get uh, excited about writing. And, and I remember Orson Scott Card talking after it had been out for just a couple of years that they were passing the million uh copy mark uh, about that time, you know, that's a lot of copies. That's, that's a lot of teachers um, getting copies for their classes or, or teaching it in schools. And I, I think there's a, a lot of value to that. So um, I, like you say, I'd recommend it for anybody, but I particularly love to re- recommend it to, to young, uh, young male readers who love science fiction. Very good. I, and I want to yeah, kind of riff on that a little bit. And Ken, you said something interesting about how, uh, you know, I can't this, believe that was me. Well, yeah, I feel like I've given you a couple compliments <laughs> you have, today. I and yeah, that. you should go home glowing now, right? <laughs> uh, I uh, you, you talk about it being written for children. I'm not so sure. It's definitely written about children, and I think it's uh, accessible by children. Sure, uh, but. I'm reminded a little bit of a series that we haven't done yet that we absolutely 100% have to do, and that's the Perdane Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about doing that for a while, uh, but if you're not familiar with those, you might be familiar with the Black Cauldron, the Book of Three, those those ones that sat on the shelf in your sixth grade classroom and that you never pulled down and read. Uh, those with a book like that or with a book like Ender's Game, I have this theory kind of that's been uh, mulling in my mind for a few months now about how good a good piece of art or a good piece of literature whether a movie or whatever it if it's if it's good it may have an age floor but it has no age ceiling and ender's game really fits this well i may not recommend ender's game to a brand new reader you know like somebody who's seven eight years old there it it may kind of go over their heads but you know once you hit that age floor of say 10 depending, you know, give or take, depending on the kid, right? Uh, where they're going to get something out of this story and enjoy it. But as you get older and reread it or read it for the first time, there are uh, themes and scenarios and uh, lines that are going to jump out to you as an adult uh, that you didn't catch as a kid. Uh, and so the book continues to be interesting and applicable as you move through life. And it so does that make sense? I Oh, yeah. I don't love this mm-hmm. idea of... Oh, well, it's a kid's book, you know, and, and yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a, a slightly, not that you were saying this, no, kid, I, but yeah, it's a slightly simple, dismissive yeah. attitude or, oh, that's just YA. And right. it, it, so it kind of gets dismissed. If it's truly great, um, it may have an age floor, but it has no age ceiling. To validate your point and, and something that Dave 
uh, alluded to in terms of who should read this. You know who else endorses this book? The United States Marine Corps. <laughs> it, it, is on, it is on their reading list for battle commanders and for officers and such. The, str- the strategy and the, the, the uh, tactics and, and team, building team building and all that. Probably, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Marine Corps loves this book. Well, and uh, yeah. you know maybe the CIA too. I want to find somebody who could <laughs> confirm that, but I don't know anybody who's actually said yes to the CIA. So... <laughs> Uh, so we'll save that, that you know of. for another guest. Anyway, let's uh, call it quits there. Uh, Dave Farland, thank you so much for coming on the show. We much appreciate your perspective and for you picking this book that we finally got to read for the show. Well, thank you. All right. And uh, if you are interested in us doing the sequels, then definitely get in touch with us and bug us about it. Uh, hit us up. At- bug us? <laughs> oh, bug us? Really? You're going to go there? <laughs> I I was trying to breeze past it, okay? He's such a bugger. Come on. Uh, yeah, I, it's a good thing this is America, right, Ken? That's exactly right. All right. Now, what, where was I? Go to thelegendarium.reddit.com and you can uh, bother us about when and whether to read the sequels. Uh, hit up patreon.com slash, the le- uh, slash legendarium to support the show. Thank you so much for reading and listening along with us, everybody, and we will see you next time. <laughs>